Hi, and welcome to our Big Book Workshop. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. In each workshop, alcoholic women in recovery will use their personal experience and knowledge to help listeners better understand a specific chapter from the fourth edition of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. At the end, our speakers will answer questions from the workshop audience. More information about attending our workshops, classes, and more can be found at magdalenhouse.org forward slash meetings. Please note the curriculum we teach through our programs at Maggie's is from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, we are not an Alcoholics Anonymous group and we are not associated with AA. Thanks for listening. We're so glad you're here. Welcome, everybody. I'm Carol. I'm an alcoholic. Cindy and I are going to be going through We Agnostics today, um, which is which is so exciting for me. It is. It was my favorite chapter when I came across the book. I, I completely understand if it's somebody's least favorite chapter. Hopefully, by the end of this session, it will be your favorite chapter. I think Cindy and I agree on how much how how much this chapter speaks to us. I wanted to sort of put it in context a little bit. This is kind of the land of the second step. That said, when it comes to agnosticism, I my experience is that for for the entirety of my journey, which is 13 years now, the the thing standing between me and the solution is always my agnosticism. Um, I had a sponsor once ask, start conversations with where are you agnostic? And so that's, it's, I don't, I don't know anyone who's transcended agnosticism in every way. That said, the reason we are all gathered as alcoholics is what we all have in common is powerlessness over alcohol. And at least for me, I kept finding myself in places that kept trying to teach me how to stop myself from drinking. And I couldn't stop myself from drinking. I learned a lot of good tricks and and a lot of neat hobbies and a lot of cool mantras, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I didn't have the power to use them against alcohol. I wasn't, my step one wasn't I'm trickless or I'm informationless or I'm desireless. I I had the desire, I had the will, I had the, the tricks and the tools but I didn't have the power. And so Alcoholics Anonymous introduced me to this revolutionary program, which doesn't teach me tricks for not drinking. It teaches me steps to accessing a power that does this impossible thing for me. So in We Agnostics and in step two, we're looking at what is it that's blocking me from that power? Step one is admitting I'm powerless. And step two is coming to believe that there is a power that can restore me to sanity. There's a power that can do this for me. And then the rest of the steps are just step-by-step step teaching me how to access that power. Um, and, and sort of the spoiler alert in We Agnostics is the only thing blocking me from this power. The only thing competing with this power for my attention is my mind trying to be that power. Uh, the only thing, it's the only thing making it hard for God to stop me from drinking is me trying to stop myself from drinking, which is frustrating because that's a very virtuous stance to take. You know, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not just stubborn or whatever, fill in the blank. The whole world has taught me to figure it out on my own, even, even in rehabs and detoxes and, you know, the places we go, I kept getting told, you know, just don't drink. So it's virtuous, my, my, my attempt to stop myself from drinking. It's just that as a powerless person, I'm not able to stop myself from drinking. So this, this, this chapter is, is going to help, uh, again, not convince me that God is, but, but sort of invite me to look at what's blocking me from, from that power. Cindy, do you want to say more about that? Yeah. The chapter kind of opens up by telling us in the first paragraph exactly, it's a little review of of this powerlessness, that I'm powerless over choice and control. 
that, that once I put alcohol in my body, I can't control the amount I take. And once I really want to quit, I can't stay quit. And so they, they begin by, by reviewing everything you've read up to this point. And the assumption is you've read everything up to this point. A lot of us, and I've heard a lot of people say this, and I first started trying to get sober in 1982. And I always skipped over this chapter because I did not think I was an agnostic. And as Caroline pointed out, agnosticism creeps up daily. So we all qualify, whether, whether you are, believe you're an atheist, an agnostic, or you and God are thick as thieves, whatever, wherever you are in that path, this chapter will apply. It really will apply. It tells us right on page 44, um, to one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster. Because what we've learned up to this point is that no human power could relieve us of our alcoholism. There is no human power. As Caroline pointed out, lots of tricks, lots of, lots of phrases, <laughs> just don't drink no matter what or whatever. But there is no human power for us uh, because we are alcoholics of the hopeless variety. It says to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face but it isn't so difficult about half our original fellowship or exactly of that type. I don't know about you guys. I believe for me, I had always believed in, in God. I was raised on that. But by the time I got here, I really felt like God didn't believe in me. I felt like that I had used up all the grace that he could possibly extend to me. And so the truth of the matter was I, was I was very angry about this concept of God because I felt like that he had sort of swept me away. Now, I want to emphasize that this belief in the power greater than yourself does not have to be a he, she, it. I use he and I use the word God just to shortcut whatever this is because none of us, none of us know exactly what this power greater than ourselves is. And so this chapter following step one is introducing us first to the idea that there is a power greater than ourselves. And second, it's, it's setting the stage for the rest of the steps. We grow every, every day. We will grow every day in developing this spiritual connection. Um, and we'll fall back and then we'll go forward and then we'll fall back and we'll go forward. But what we're really asking in this chapter, what I believe they're asking is, is to have an open mind and consider some things that you haven't considered before. Okay, thanks. Yeah, one of the things that keeps coming to my mind, I like to use analogies a lot and just so I can anchor myself in a visual. Me trying to stop drinking. It's like if, it's like if I'm in a car that won't start and I'm, and I'm trying as hard as I can to start it. And, um, oh, I remember maybe if I do it with my left hand, oh, wait, um, like I'll go and get a master's degree in engine making. I'll learn everything there is to learn about cars. I'll, I'll go to any length. I'll, I'll gather my friends and, and why don't you guys push? And if I just, oh no, be relaxed, be relaxed. Okay. Hold on. I'll do anything I can to get this car started. And it's very frustrating because meanwhile, Every person I know is driving by me effortlessly and they're not trying at all. And it looks like I must not be trying because my car is not starting. And isn't it simple? Keep it simple, stupid Caroline. Come on, just start the car. Just start the car. Really, I thought in AA, we all just gathered and pushed each other's cars. I was, I misunderstood. But what I found, AA comes along and says, oh, our cars wouldn't start either. Here, rather than 12 tricks for starting to ca- starting a car, here's 12 steps to a gas station. The thing about it is that it's not on the day that I like really come to believe in gas stations that I'm willing to put my keys down and walk out of the car entirely. It's on the day where I'm finally convinced that there is nothing I can do to start the car myself. And any time someone says to me, um, you know, just don't drink no matter what, they're basically telling me, just keep trying. The, the thing that is blocking me, that is keeping me from this gas station, 
the thing that is the only thing keeping me from the gas station is me trying to start the car myself. And again, it's, it's not bad. I'm, I'm not just being stubborn. I'm doing everything I, I think I know. But this idea that I'm not, that I'm not going to be able to start it myself, that I actually, what I need to do is put the keys down entirely and leave the car entirely to go to a gas station. I'm, the analogy gets lost a little bit, sorry. But that, that idea is, that's revolutionary. Anytime, and, and, this, and this has to do with drinking, but, but this has to do with, again, anytime, anytime I'm afraid and want to exert my will more, anytime I feel threatened and want to exert my will more, it's, it's me doing what I, what I think I know. It's me, me, it's me trying. And so it is very, it's revolutionary and requires, the book says later that faith requires great courage. It does. It requires great courage. Um, and faith to be willing to pause on what my mind is insisting that I do and, and try this other thing. So this, again, this, this chapter isn't trying to sell the idea of a gas station on me. It's not trying to sell the idea of God. It's not promoting God. It's pointing out again, what, what is it that's keeping me in this car trying to to start this unstartable car myself. Cindy, did we, are we, can we just re-anchor ourselves in on, on 45, that second paragraph, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. And I think that's the only requisite. It just has to be a power that's greater than me. Obviously, but where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. And for anyone who's new, my favorite thing about that line is I thought my whole, I had, I went to a treatment center and a, I went to some places, you know, um, where I was introduced to AA. And I really thought that every page of this book, that every line was um, some version of, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. You're going to want to drink, don't drink, don't. I mean, I thought every single page said don't drink. I thought every step was step one, don't drink. Step two, don't drink. Step three, swear to God, you won't drink. I thought the entire program was about not drinking. And there actually isn't a single line in this book that says don't drink. There's no instruction to not drink. There's no step that says just keep trying to start the car. This line tells me everything I need to know about this program in this book, which is that this is, this is just teaching me how to connect to a power to do the not drinking for me and not just the not drinking, but everything else as well. It's also worth reminding ourselves that this God concept, this God solution isn't reserved for just when I feel like drinking or just when, when I am going to a party where there might be alcohol. The instruction is, is that this God idea, this God reliance has to be, um, has to work in and through me 24 seven in every area, which again, why this is so relevant. Even if I'm 10 years sober, 20 years sober and haven't thought about alcohol in, in a lifetime, I'm supposed to be God reliant in all of my affairs. Cindy, can I pass you the mic? Yes, I like that too. It, it says, but where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. At the beginning, it told us what our problem is. Our problem is lack of power. My problem has never been alcohol. There's alcohol in the house I'm living in right now. That's not my problem. My problem is lack of power, right? And as life goes by and the longer I stay sober, I mean, lack of power is my problem in any problem that I have, you know, um, whether it's uh, what's going to happen to business or money or even small things. Lack of power is my dilemma. Down at the bottom, something that really helped me a lot for those of you who have once had a faith in God and, and feel like you've lost it or whatever, it, it says down at the bottom, but as faith falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God, 
for we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. We know how he feels. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. Prejudice is, is thinking I know something that I don't know. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. I don't know if that applies to any of you, but that certainly applied to me. When I was in my last treatment center, somebody started singing a hymn and I started throwing chairs. To others, the word brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. My childhood raising, it was all fear-based. It was all fear-based. And it says, perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. That's the deal. Anything that I have believed up to this point, I don't care if I'm a priest or a minister or a nun or a missionary or whatever, I'm, I can't not drink, right? So whatever I believe or think I believe is simply inadequate. And that was very humbling for me to realize maybe there is a much larger concept of God than anything I've ever had. I know when we read Bill's story or we read the story that's the end of the chapter where somebody has this spectacular hot flash experience with God and then they never drink again. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be sitting there and suddenly be stricken sober. You know, um, I wanted glitter to come down. I wanted, you know, to be absolutely certain of God's presence in my life. And that's, that's what I thought a spiritual awakening was going to look like. And I'm here to tell you that may or may not happen in your life. I've had moments like that. It goes on in the book to talk about on a starlit night, you know, we go, who then made this all? And, and we feel a closeness to God, but it soon leaves us, right? I went on a young life trip when I was in high school and I was, I was an alcoholic then, although I didn't know it. And being at the top of this mountain in Colorado and seeing the stars, I was so certain that there was this God. And, and I, I was so certain that he had moved into my heart. And as soon as I got down from that mountain and off the Young Life tour, I was back drinking again. Worldly clamor set in, you know, it, it, it wasn't a permanent experience for me. It was just a momentary glimpse into this power greater than myself. In the back of the book, it, it gives us a reading on, on spiritual experiences. And most of us develop our spiritual experience in the form of an educational variety. That is so meaningful to me that I can continue to learn and continue to grow. And this inadequate conception that I once had of God, which is still probably inadequate, but it is sufficient to bring about a spiritual experience that keeps me away from the first drink. It continues to grow even through hard times, especially through hard times. It continues to grow. Can I add on to that, Cindy? Yeah, please do. Um, just because I, um, I, th I think what, what Cindy just uh, described is so important. Again, no matter what, no matter what kind of relationship you have with God coming in, including no relationship with God, I uh, majored in religion in college. I, I, um, I, I had this idea that knowing about God would somehow give me the power of God or something. I could, um, while sitting in my car, trying to start this unstartable car, I was reading scriptures and, and, you know, mantraing and praying and, and meditating on things. I confused the idea of God with a reliance on God or an experience of God. And what AA taught me to do, again, there's no chapter, there's, there's very little description of God or teaching about God in this book. It's not, it's not teaching us about God, it's showing us how to move from an idea of God to an experience of God, which is the thing that I didn't, I didn't know how to access in all of my wisdom and all of my knowledge and, and all of my good talk, because I could talk about God pretty good too. I still didn't know how to have an experience of God because I was too busy playing God. I also, like Cindy said, had lots of what I felt like were white light experiences. Many, many, many nights 
before falling asleep drunk, I would have a white light clarity of, oh, oh, I'm never going to do this again. Oh, I'm so excited about tomorrow when I'm not going to drink tomorrow. Yay. Oh, I'm so excited. Yay. I get it now. It's so clear. Yay. And then I would wake up the next day as if I had had a lobotomy in my sleep. I'd wake up the next day and think, how did I get that white light experience again? Oh, I think it was white wine that did it this time. You know, I, my my white light moments, as Cindy said, wouldn't weren't didn't last. So I had this real fear of what it meant that God was the solution to this problem as someone that thought I knew everything there was to know about God and had had what felt like white light experiences before and still couldn't stop drinking. That was really scary to me. And again, what the good news that we that we have to offer is that what AA teaches us, what AA taught me, is how to have an ongoing experience of God. Again, different than an idea of God or an understanding of God, but an actual experience of God that's ongoing. But again, requires that I have to stop playing God long enough to be available for that experience. So when I, when I say these are 12 steps to, to accessing a power greater than ourselves, another way of saying that is these are 12 steps for um, learning how to stop play God long enough to experience God. I want to add to that too, because the word agnostic is a Greek word. And A is the Greek word for not or without. And Gnostic, Gnosticism is a, is a Greek word for knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that you gain through experience, not through study, right? So basically, we're without this experience of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, as Caroline was saying, there's a, there's a definite difference between head knowledge and an experience. And the experience is promised to us. It's, it's a promise. It says on page 46, we found that as soon as we, we were able to lay aside prejudice, and that's any preconceived notions that you might have. I, I, I want to just add something which is kind of offbeat, but my partner is, is a lawyer. He has like a bunch of PhDs. He's retired. He teaches law school. And he was telling me this morning that the very first thing they teach law students is they beat them down to get rid of all their old ideas so that they can get new ideas. And that's really what we're trying to do is to, is to let go of all of our old ideas. The women in the house uh, usually receive this prayer, um, God, please help me lay, set aside everything I know or think I know about you, about me, about AA, and here's the big deal, so that I may have a new experience. So I'm, I want to lay aside all my prejudices and express even a willingness, a willingness, just a simple willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves. We commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. I remember when I first came to AA in the 80s, they would have me write down what I thought God was or what I thought God wasn't. Guys, that's sense, senseless. It doesn't matter what I think God is or what I want God to be or none of that. I'm never going to have an accurate visual of, of what this power is. If I did, I wouldn't need to have faith, right? And so... I've got to know that from the very beginning, I'm never going to have a clear cut definition. And as Caroline said, this book does not define God whatsoever, ever, ever, ever. It's something you experience, not something that you can define or use your broken mind, which we learned in step one. Our minds are broken. Our mind, that's where our problem centers in is our mind. So we're, this is not going to come through a mental channel. It's going to come through action and more action as the steps progress. And that's how we become changed. It's, it's sort of like when I'm not looking and studying and forcing it, 
I'm just following the directions that I've been given to find this pathway to a power greater than myself. Something happens and I didn't do it. And, and I couldn't predict it. I, no, or couldn't predict it. And, and there's no way, I mean, it's like trying to explain to someone who's never had sex, what sex is like, or trying to explain to someone who's never had a baby, what having a baby is like. No one can give you a heads up. This is what to expect. This is what's so beautiful. It's your own experience. It's your own experience. When we honestly see. And I think, um, and we're going to get into this in a minute. Again, the reason that's so revolutionary, I think, especially for alcoholics, is we find so much safety in understanding or being able to predict or be, being able to reason. I was so stuck looking for God through the lens of what I thought I would find. When I, when I pray, I have this idea of what it will look like if God is and if God answers. And if it doesn't go that way, then I guess there is no God and God did not answer. I'm, I'm so restricted by, again, what my brain even says God is. That's why what, what Cindy's saying is so important. God is in the, I don't know part when, when God shows up, it's, it's a surprise, (laughs) you know, it's, it's the part I couldn't predict or couldn't foresee. And so I have to, AA teaches me how to be surprisable. That set aside prayer is my favorite, actually, of all the prayers, because the the thing blocking me off from God is everything I know or think I know, so that God help me set aside everything I know or think I know about you, about AA, about myself, um, so that I may have a brand new experience. One of the things that, Cindy, you taught me early on was this idea that in AA, what we get is this thing that we've been looking for for so long, which is a new experience. I was stuck on this hamster wheel with this groundhog's day, you know, stuck at the, at the, at the mercy and limited by, by my mind, by the bridge of reason, which we'll get into here in a second. So when we get to page 47 um, in the middle of the pages, all step two is it's not some lengthy tutorial. It's, it's just simply this, we needed to ask ourselves, but one short question, do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? That shouldn't be so difficult, but for some reason, it really is difficult for some people. One thing I know is that alcohol was a power greater than myself. The other thing I know is, is that I didn't create anything, you know, this whole universe that we live in, I didn't do it. So there, there has to be some sort of power greater than myself. I can't make the sun go up and I can't make the sun go down. So it wasn't that difficult for me to accept that there is a power greater than myself. But I started with that, I, knowing that alcohol is a power greater than myself and there must be a power greater than alcohol. And it says, uh, as soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. So we can build an enormous structure, an enormous spiritual structure that is going to protect us from the mental obsession just by being willing to believe, even if we don't believe, but just to have that little bit of willingness, we can start very, very simple. And that's relevant. And that simple cornerstone is something that I lose access to even again, over 10 years later. It's like last night, for example, I got into a little bit of a fight with a friend who has no idea that we're in a fight. I got very, my instincts got threatened. I got, I got scared. In my agnosticism, my mind said, I must act this way. So this person knows that I'm mad so that the apology will look like that. And then everything will be okay etc etc um i had i had to I've, i i still to this day i have to be reminded and taught and ask myself in this moment where i'm certain this person did committed a crime i'm the victim everything's going kapooey i'm probably going to die unless they understand how upset i am and how nice i am for not expressing that that i mean that's that's what my mind was was certain of and in that moment i had to pause and 
ask myself, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? Am I willing to, that's, that's synonymous with, am I, am I even willing to believe that I might be wrong? Am I even willing to believe that there's another way for me to be okay other than what my mind, the picture my mind is painting? Am I even willing to believe that there's information I don't have? Am I willing to believe this could go different? And that that is a bold and revolutionary and courageous thing to do at any given moment when I get scared and my mind tells me there's only one way this can go. It's wow. that that humility the humility of, am I willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? I.e., am I willing to believe I might be wrong, even though I am so certain I'm not? That is a, and whether you're brand new or not, the news is that's progress, not perfection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we are, we are constantly going back and forth, back and forth with our agnosticism. And with our belief, I, I have a chair I sit in every morning to do my prayer and meditation. And I'm there and I've, and I've got a sign that was over Carl Jung's um, door that said, bidden or not bidden, God is present. I meditate on that. And I go through my 11th step morning upon awakening. And I have other things I read and I sit quietly. And then about 10 minutes in, I start trying to figure out how to solve a problem on my own. That's insanity because I cannot figure it out. God gave us brains to use. Absolutely. And as we progress through the program, we develop the ability to tap into his power, to rely upon an intuitive thought or inspiration on how to handle things. But in the beginning and then down the road, we forget that, you know? And so we have to do this, this pausing, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, I think. All right. You're um, right. Let's, let's get back on page 50 here at the bottom of the page. It says here are thousands of men and women worldly indeed. That's us worldly indeed that flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things, that would be the steps. There has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements which are the steps and continuing to, to do 10, 11, and 12. Right there, that is the revolutionary change that Caroline mentioned at the beginning. This is the new experience we're looking for. This is the revolutionary change. And then it says, once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Get this, leaving aside the drink question, setting alcohol completely aside. They tell why living was so unsatisfactory. They show how the change came over them. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. I, I, I can really vividly remember thinking the presence of God is the most important fact of your life. And not buying into that. I mean, I want all my problems solved. You know, I want this, I want that. How can the, just the consciousness of the presence of God be the most important fact of my life? That is the most important fact of my life today. Without that, I would be suicidal. I promise you. I would absolutely, what would be the point? With all the issues that are going on on this planet today, and all the stressors and everything without this consciousness of the presence of God in my life, I would say, what's the point? What's the point? And I'm so grateful that I've been able to live long enough to know that God is, that God truly is everything. 
when I, when I read that line, alcohol was like that for me, my, the consciousness of the presence of alcohol was the most important fact of my life. That was because that was saying, no matter what's happening, who I'm mad at money, no money, COVID, no COVID, what have you, I'm okay. The consciousness of the presence of alcohol in my hand was the most important fact of my life. Uh, the the consciousness of the presence of God is is the equivalent of that in the sense that like I think about it this way the consciousness of the absence of God is otherwise the most important fact of my life when when I am afraid I am not going to be okay that's the most important thing and I will go to any length to get okay I will tell this lie I'll steal this sandwich I'll finagle that scheme that strategize that Facebook post this maybe they'll understand I'll, I'll go to any length to fix whatever is threatening me the absence of God is the most important thing whether I know it or not conversely then that AA has given me this gift where I am now conscious of the presence of God, which is the same as saying I'm conscious of an infinite power that loves me and will take care of me. I'm conscious of the fact that all is well. To be conscious of the fact that all is well, that's why I want to win the lottery in the first place. That's why I want to have a house in the first place. I think that will make me okay. That's why I want a partner in the first place. That's why I want all these things in the first place. So it, it cannot be overstated. And of course, coming into AA, I was looking for way more cash and prizes than the consciousness of the presence of God until I got given the gift of the consciousness of the presence of God and found that that is, in fact, what I had been seeking and striving for all along. Absolutely. The book goes on to, to get into some interesting things to consider on page 51, where it talks about this world of ours has made more material progress in the last century than all the millenniums which went before. And I'll just sort of summarize this. They tell us that the people of ancient times were just as smart as we were, but material progress was slow. Interestingly enough, spiritual progress was pretty quick in those days. Today, material progress is rapid. I can't keep up with it. I don't know about all you youngins, but I can't keep up with, with any of the material progress that's taking place. Yet spiritual progress has slowed so down, right? And the challenge for us today is, is to seek the spirit because that is what is real. That is what is permanent. Then it goes on, on page 52, in the middle of the page, um, it points out the bedevilments. Um, it says, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. Uh, we wanted to change our human problems just like we tried to solve material problems. We were having trouble with personal relationships. Okay, this is what the spiritual malady looks like. This is untreated alcoholism. We were having trouble with personal relationships, check. We couldn't control our emotional natures, check. We were a prey to misery and depression, good Lord, check. Um, we couldn't make a living. Some of you go, but I kept my job. Yeah, mm -hmm. but could you make a life? I mean, you know, uh, we couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. Oh my God, that was the worst. I, I, I vividly remember standing in the shower, screaming to the top of my lungs, what is my purpose on this earth? What is my purpose? I didn't have a purpose. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether or not we should see news reels of lunar flight. They're talking about Kitty Hawk and going to the moon and that sort of stuff. But isn't that more important to solve these basic human problems than anything else. I mean, that's, that's what we want more than anything mm -hmm. to be okay. Right. Uh, so Caroline, you're laughing. So you must have something bad, good to say. Well, I, as you're reading, I'm, I'm so, so it's, so like you said, I could come into this meeting and tell everyone, guess what? 
we just built our own, uh, the government just built the time machine. And now we've got this new thing where you don't even have to call a person. You can just think something and they're able to hear it. And people would say, oh yeah, I could see how we could come up with that. Or, or someday there's going to be a toilet that goes to the bathroom for you. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Versus if, if when my friend hurt my feelings last night, <laughs> I was I was certain we could not be friends anymore and we would never speak again. And you could not convince me otherwise. You could not say to me, Caroline, maybe there's a better way to handle that resentment. Nope. We're, we're so close-minded when it comes to our misery and our depression and our uselessness. Um, you know, when I get, when I get scared, I'll be scared forever. I've always been scared. I'll never feel safe again. I'm so open-minded when it comes to these unbelievable advancements, like in technology, what have you. But when it comes to how I feel, you telling me that maybe there's a chance that I could have a shift in perception? Nope. <laughs> I was in a meeting recently where someone was uh, quoting a book outside of AA that um, a miracle is a shift in perception. If when I really think about it, yeah, a shift in perception for me is miraculous because when I'm mad at you, I'm mad at you forever and there's nothing that could change it. When I'm a victim of something, I'm a victim to that forever and there's nothing that could change that. To actually have a shift in perception is, is miraculous. So yeah, when Cindy, why I was laughing is as you were reading those bedevilments, when they come over me today and they do crop up today. I am, I'm so bizarrely stubborn when it comes to um, the, the foreverness of them. The, you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm in misery, there's, there's no getting me out. There's no way out. That's, it's so fixed versus, versus uh, do you think one day that we'll have a machine that will, I don't know, let you read people's minds? Yeah, sure. I could see that. <laughs> Anyways, it was making me laugh for some reason. Uh, it reminds me of a term that my sponsor used to use with me when something relatively minor, like a, like a fight with someone or fear, which at the time seems like it's everything, whatever that happens to be, she, she would say to me, you just go ahead and have your little spiritual temper tantrum for a while. And when you're tired of that, reach out for the solution. And that is this omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipowerful, greater than myself power that will solve that problem. I can remember sitting there drinking and praying to God to, to make me stop drinking because after all, you have all the power. Why can't you just fix this? Or why can't you just fix that or the other? And I was making demands on God to do it and to do it in my time frame. Just because we don't get the answers we want at the second we want them doesn't mean that this power greater than ourselves isn't already about the business of solving it. Anyway, I don't know where I got off on that. Okay, so now we're going to get down to Caroline, and I both love this part. Caroline, why don't you do this on page 53? Uh, we're going to let's let's just start at the top of 53 because because this to me is the sum up of the whole thing. Logic is great stuff. And this is this is, again, the only thing this is this is me trying to start the car myself. Logic is great stuff. We liked it. We still like it. It's not by chance we were given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our senses and to draw conclusions. That is one of man's magnificent attributes. We agnostically inclined would not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to a reasonable approach and interpretation. Hence, we're at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it more sane and logical to believe than not to believe, why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when we threw up our hands in doubt and said we don't know. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? That's a pretty extreme assignment. 
um, Cindy and I were talking, sort of laughing about this earlier, just a few pages before it says, you just have to be a little bit willing. And then by two pages later, God is either everything or nothing. What is your choice to be? Choose now. (laughs) Understand infinity right now. That question, just for whatever it's worth, in, in my experience, again, I have the opportunity to make this choice all day, every day. When I got mad last night, God is either everything or God is nothing. What is the choice to be? Today, I'm probably going to get scared of something. I'll probably get scared after this talk, thinking about things. God is either everything or God is nothing. What is my choice to be? I I make that choice all the time. And last night, for example, when I was angry and sulking, I chose that God is nothing. Not consciously, I didn't mean to. But when I'm afraid and I'm certain that you're going to be mad and so I lie, I'm choosing that God is nothing. Yeah, that's mostly how it manifests with me. If I'm afraid and my, my reason is telling me um, if this person knows the truth, the whole world's going to fall apart. I have a choice in that moment. God is everything or God is nothing. I always have that choice. And for me to take that leap of faith and tell the truth anyway, I'm choosing that God is everything. Arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines and the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. We were grateful that reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we'd been leaning too heavily on reason that last mile, and we did not like to lose our support. What I love about that, that visual, I, again, as I majored in religion in college, I majored in it from the bridge of reason. I, I, from the bridge of reason, yes, that makes sense. I can connect those dots. Oh, I bet if I did that, God really would step in. Huh, that'd probably be a good thing to do. You probably, I just, just um, cemented on the bridge of reason. And this program of action is, is literally step-by-step teaching me how to take that, that really revolutionary and terrifying faithful step from the bridge of what I think I know to the shore of what I don't know. Anytime I'm afraid, and so I need to lie, otherwise you'll be mad. I have the opportunity to step from the bridge of reason, which tells me you'll be mad and I'll die, onto the desired shore of faith. Well, let's see. Let's see, let's see what God looks like. Let's see when I leap what it feels like to have God catch me. But I have to leap to experience the being caught. Because again, it's not enough to just be able to imagine it. It's not enough just to be able to discuss it or paint a picture of it. It's required for us that we actually get to experience it but we can't experience it without the frightening leap. Again, when I, when I say every day I'm confronted with the choice of God is everything or God is nothing, what is my choice to be? That's every, every day, every moment, I, I have the opportunity to step from the bridge of safety and reason, everything I think I know, onto the desired shore of faith of a new experience, um, which at least in my experience can only happen when I try something scary. I, I want to add to that. He, he capitalizes bridge of reason. And I believe he does that to show us that that's what we've been worshiping all along is that bridge of my ability to reason. Going back to step one, the problem centers in my mind. Now reason, I love that he says logic is great stuff. We love it. Okay. There is a reason that we've been given the ability to think. It keeps me from stepping out in front of a truck right? It uh, keeps me from kissing somebody who has a deadly disease that's contagious. I mean, you know, reason is good stuff, but it never solved the, the problem of alcohol. It did not solve that problem. Reasoning couldn't because, because my reasoning was so messed up. I would, I would always want to know something before I could experience it. And what we're being encouraged to do is not need to know something before we can experience it. 
Well, going back to like the Wright brothers, for example, why that's such a good example, why, which we sort of skipped over a little bit, but they talk about the Wright brothers, you know, building the first plane. The idea of flight was unreasonable. That's an unreasonable idea for that time. The idea of making amends to someone I'm still mad at is unreasonable. You know, the earlier in the book, it talks about in going through these steps, common sense becomes uncommon sense. And that's, and that's one of the miracles for us is I'm not bound by reason. Thank God the Wright brothers weren't bound by reason. Reason is good as far as it gets us. But again, it's unreasonable that any of us would stop what we're doing on a Sunday to gather to talk about this chapter. That's, that's according to, according to my mind, kind of an unreasonable idea for a Sunday afternoon. It's unreasonable that I would tell a sponsor all of the dark nooks and crannies of my character. It's unreasonable that I would, I had a sponsor who, when I was first getting sober, I remember the first time she had us pray right in the middle, everything was going on and she just got on her knees and started to pray. I thought that was really quite unreasonable, but it's, but it's that, that step from what I'm stuck in, uh, going from from reasonable onto the desired shore of anything's possible. I, I had a thing happen many years ago when I was first sober. We had a terrible economic downturn and uh, we really needed to sell our house. And uh, because of the economic downturn, nobody could afford to buy a house, but we had to sell this house. Finally, there was a prospective buyer and someone who was qualified and could buy this house that was going to come see this house. For weeks and months, literally, I'd been crying to my sponsor, we've got to sell this house, we've got to sell this house. And she, and she said to me, Cindy, if, if I was relying on you to sell my house, I'd be scared too. And anyway, so finally, we have these people that are going to buy the house. That day, I was supposed to go to Timberlawn to carry the message. And I remember calling my sponsor and saying, um, we've got a buyer for the house and I need to, I need to have somebody replace me today because I've got to go, I've got to clean up the house and put chrysanthemums on the front porch and all that stuff that you do when you're trying to sell a house. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, you get your ass to Timberlawn. And I went to Timberlawn and that made no sense to me. There was nothing reasonable about that because somebody could have easily filled in for me, but I did that. I did that. And when I came home, we had a contract on the house. It doesn't always happen that magically, right? But as Caroline pointed out, I, I, I believe nothing about the steps make any sense. I mean, you know, if I was writing the steps, step one would be quit drinking. You know, I mean, what, are, what does any of this have to do with me not drinking? How can any making amends, all of that stuff, what does that have to do with it? That's my first step of faith is to do it anyway, even though mm -hmm. I don't understand how that's going to help. Yeah. I don't need to understand in advance how it's going to help. So stepping from the, 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 the bridge of reason to the shore of faith is a lot of surrenders and abandons and that kind of thing where I just do it and bypass what I think is reasonable. Remember, you know, we, we sort of skipped over like all the, all the juicy goods of step one, but remember again, the reason we're all gathered is we all have minds that trick us into drinking. I have a mind that's obsessed with drinking. It's like someone hardwired into my mind's GPS, drink, 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 drink. And anytime I don't go to a drink, my mind rerouting, 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 and it won't shut up. I have a mind that dooms me to drink. When people say, just don't drink no matter what, well, what am I supposed to do with my mind that insists that I drink no matter what? My mind, I, I cannot trust my mind when it comes to drinking. And that's so frightening. That's such a scary place to be, especially anyone who, who's, who's suggested, who said that they were like a two times, three times, five times, 10 times Maggie's girl. It's because our minds will not let us not drink. I have a mind that's obsessed with it. And so in order to get free of alcohol and be protected from alcohol, I have to learn how to trust something other than my mind. If, if I had a mind that kept convincing me to jump into fire, 
I would need to find something else to rely on other than my mind. This illness wouldn't be so fatal if I knew how to rely on anything other than my mind. But my mind is so convincing. My mind says, no, it must be this way or else. No, you must do it like this or else. No, this, this will never change. No, you'll always be mad. No, you have to lie. No, just, my mind is so convincing and so certain. So this, this idea that I'm going to learn how to rely on something else, the idea, it's revolutionary that Cindy went to Timberlawn when her mind was so certain that the stakes were so high that her family would end up homeless in the poorhouse if she didn't stay home and put chrysanthemums in the front, that our mind is so certain of that. It's revolutionary that she had been taught how to go to Timberlawn anyway. This idea of moving from self-reliance, mind, reason, reliance to God reliance is a simple idea, but it is the most revolutionary thing any of us will ever do. That's how convincing our minds are. That's how convincing reason is to take opposite action and do something I don't understand. Not just that I don't understand, but that I'm certain will backfire. It's revolutionary. And what's so exciting, what the only reason that we're even gathered here to share this is because every time we take that leap onto the desired shore of faith, every single time God is there and catches us in a, in a way that 100% of the time we couldn't have predicted, that's surprising, that's, that's unreasonable. The more we practice doing that, and, 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 and I, this is especially true for new people, but it's true for all of us like the women in Maggie's, you're in Maggie's, everything, it's great, it's great. But about day seven or eight or nine, suddenly what becomes the most important thing is I've got to get a car. I've got to get my car back. I've got to get my, I've got to get my court stuff done. I've got to get a job. I've got to get a place to live. All these things suddenly become these worldly clamors come in. And then we say, we'll work the steps when we get all this other stuff solved. That is ask backwards. What we have to do is develop, to begin to develop and trust this God of our non-understanding, this leap of faith, and those other things will get worked out. I'm here to tell you that's been true for me ever since I got sober. Everything that seemed like a disaster, except the death of my husband, and even all of us die, so I have to set that one aside. But every, every trauma and difficulty and fear and everything, if I put it in God's hands and do what I know to be the right thing to do, and the right thing to do for me to do is to work these steps, develop my relationship with God and my conscious contact with God and help other women. If I do that, all that other stuff gets taken care of. And that seems unreasonable. Okay, so we'll move on. God, Caroline, we only have a few more minutes. Well, as we go to the next thing, the question might be arising when Cindy says that I have to put it in God's hands. The question is how, how, how do I put it in God's hands? And that literally is what steps four through 12 teach me how to do. But I, but again, I, I have to be um, aware going into it that putting it into God's hands means it doesn't get to be in mine. And my whole life, I feel safer with it in my hands. So again, this, this chapter is just inviting us to consider that in order for God to get something, that means I, I, don't, I, I don't get to manage it. So where are we now? Well, since we're running out of time, on page 55, actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity. You know, when something bad happens, we go, there's no God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things like people or getting my needs met or whatever. But in some form or another, it is there for faith and a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as much as the feeling we had for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was a mu as much a fact as we were. 
I love this last, this next sentence. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. It tells me that God is within me. We find the great reality deep down within ourselves. And then it says we can only clear the ground a bit. And that's what Caroline and I are trying to do today. We, we couldn't read every single word of this chapter, but we're trying to clear the ground away a, a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself. If you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come. And the conscious, that is a promise. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come. And how that happens is by working the steps, by surrendering to a sponsor. That sounds sort of weird because that's a human. But as my sponsor always told me, anybody has a better idea than you do on how to do this. You can go ask anybody on the street, you know, and they're going to have a better idea than you do when it comes to this. So surrendering to the directions of a sponsor's had a spiritual awakening, surrendering to the work that's required to complete these steps. It is promised that the consciousness of my belief is sure to come. Okay, Caroline, why don't you take us out? I guess the last thing I would say about that as you're, as, as you were describing it is again, that, that idea that the great reality is deep within me, deep within you, deep within Jacqueline, deep within Tina, deep within Jack, everyone has it deep within themselves. That means that I get to, I am being invited to have my own experience with the God of my understanding. And that might look like how Cindy described it, and it might not. The, the most exciting thing about this is that it's, it's my experience is that I've gotten to have my own relationship with a God of my understanding and the miracles look to me. I, I don't know if you've ever had like a God moment or a God shot, sometimes people call it. And then you try to describe it to someone else and it loses all its magic as you try to describe it. Again, I'm, I've been really, really surprised all along the way what a God experience feels like, looks like, and it's personal to me. So again, whatever my old ideas about God were and whatever the world's ideas about God are, let them not prevent me or stand in the way of me having a new experience that I could not have even predicted. Again, let me be surprisable all along the way. And these steps, the rest of the steps teach me how to stay surprisable. Who are you to say there is no God? No. <laughs> yeah, we have five minutes. Do we open it up to any sort of question or, or anything in the last? Well, that, that who, who are you to say there is no God on page 56? Caroline, you want to talk about just, just without having to read it, just the story of this? Go ahead. You, will you do it? I like hearing yeah. you talk about it. Um, this is a story about a guy and he was an alcoholic. And one night when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later alone in his room, he asked himself this question, is it possible that all the religious people I've known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then like a thunderbolt, a great thought came in and crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? The man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. Now, this is his experience. This does not have to be your experience, but this is just an experience. I, this is the experience I wanted. I wanted yeah. to tumble out of bed and <laughs> sunlight fill the room. This man recounts that he tumbled out of his bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. And then it goes on to say, thus was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. No later vicissitude has shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away. That very night years ago, it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. What is this but a simple miracle of healing? 
yet its elements are simple. Circumstances had made him willing to believe. Earlier in the book, and we, I think we passed over this, for many of us, this getting sober is a tedious process. It certainly was for me, a very tedious process. But alcohol circumstances finally beat me into a state of reasonableness or uncommon sense to where I was willing to go to any length, regardless of whether it made sense to this brain of mine. And by the way, I I thought I was really, really smart. I mean, I was a bad drunk and a mess up, but by golly, I'm smart. And I think that's how most alcoholics feel. But alcohol beat me into a state of reasonableness. That is the only thing that gets us there to where we are willing to let go with complete abandon and begin to consider that maybe just maybe this thing will work for me too. I think that's a good thing to end on. Let me say thank you all for joining us today and giving us the opportunity to um, be useful and to talk about this chapter, which I said earlier and I meant it is I think our favorite chapter and is as applicable today as it was for me 13 years ago. Again, I, I, I have the opportunity to remind myself every time I'm afraid, who am I to say there is no God? This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.